Welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 22. My name is Dominic, and with me a little bit later is Janice. Today we spoke to Mr. Owen Ballard, who is a folklorist and ethnographer specializing in Afro-Caribbean traditions of Central African origin, fraternalism, Celtic studies, and ethnomusicology. Having received his PhD in folklore and folk life from the University of Pennsylvania, Owen has been a musical instrument maker, a bookseller, college professor, academic dean, and independent researcher. He is initiated in multiple spiritual traditions, such as Espiritismo and Voodoo, to name just two. He is also a Master Mason. If you are interested in Owen's work, you can follow him on his blog, which is called The Hedge Mason. And FYI, Owen is spelled E-O-G-H-A-N. Before we get going, as usual, I just want to say thank you to our longtime patrons and to our new patrons. You are helping us upgrade the show slowly but surely. On that note, we did get Janice a new mic, which seems to be working well. Unfortunately, I don't know what's going on, his connection or something, but there's this uh, annoying clicking sound that you will hear a little bit in this episode, especially in the outro. So we apologize and are working to get that fixed. We dedicate this to Hermes, and we freely distribute the merits we have accumulated doing this work to all sentient beings for our mutual benefit. Okay, we are extremely happy to have Mr. Owen Craig Ballard on the show today to talk about um, spiritism, spiritualism, the Afro-Caribbean traditions, and a whole lot more. Um, welcome to the show, Owen. Thank you. Glad to be here. We're very glad to have you. And as always, we have Janice as well. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. So, Owen, can you please uh, maybe talk to the audience a little bit about how you got into the Afro-Caribbean traditions, spiritualism. I'm interested because we talked a little bit before the show and you spend a lot of time in Ireland. You're obviously not uh, from the Caribbean. So um, I'm curious to see how this all, <laughs> how this all played out. Oh, uh, well, um, life has taken me down a lot of different paths. Um, I first became interested in spiritual matters, I guess, somewhere around the age of maybe nine or ten, and got introduced to, thanks to having a brother who was 11 years my senior, I introduced to all sorts of fascinating things. So by the time I was perhaps uh, 10, I was looking at everything from uh, the Mennonite tradition to the early uh, appearances of uh, European witchcraft revival to Bongpo religion in Tibet. Um, and I went on and in a couple of years became 
aware of Brazilian Umbanja and um, what at the time I loosely and I later discovered not too correctly was calling Santeria, uh, thanks to the early books I stumbled across by um, Nihene Gonzalez Whipler, whom I do not recommend or read these days, but that's another matter. Uh, I won't get into personalities. Um, and became momentarily involved in things like um, uh, Seraferia and a variety of neo-pagan things, which I left almost as quickly as I got into them. Um, and was very involved in mostly fairly traditional Gaelic spiritual tradition. Um, not neo-pagan, but Gaelic. And at some point realized, of course, that what was happening was I was doing all of this devotional things related to Gaelic deities. But then when I wanted to get some work done, I was looking at Umbanda and, and uh, Cuban and Brazilian things. And I said, and Haitian and New Orleans. And I'm saying, there's something interesting going on here. Um, moved back to Ireland, did a lot of other things, eventually came back to the States in my late 30s, I guess, and um, went back to school and got my doctorate in folklore and folk life at the University of Pennsylvania. And in the process of doing that, um, ended up going to Cuba and doing field work and getting initiated into several traditions of Palo, um, picking up Vodou along the way and mostly involved with Cuban versions of Vodou, which is totally Haitian, but Cuban as well. Um, and that's sort of how I got to all of that. So, you know, it's it's one of those bizarre things. My master's uh, thesis was on linguistic politics in contemporary Gaelic language music, and my doctorate was on uh, Afro-diasporic religions of Central African Congo origin. Go figure. <laughs> <laughs> That's extremely interesting. So you are an espiritista, uh, a palero, a voodooisant. So for... For the audience, can you maybe talk about maybe the differences between Espiritismo, Paulo, Umbanda, Santeria, Lukumi, those okay. things people might be um, familiar with, but there's a lot of mixing. Yeah, and the thing is, there shouldn't be a lot of mixing. And I'm a stickler. Um, in the way things are practiced, in fact, I just posted something on Facebook about that this morning. Um, everything is in its own lane. Um, the only reason in Cuba that anyone would have been originally involved in both Palo, which is a Central African Congo religion, and Orisha, which is West African Yoruba, would have been initially because they had parents from those two ethnic traditions, from those two countries, probably from those countries. Mm. originally and both parents were insistent upon their children being 
given the rites of passage of their own culture. And even then, it caused fight. You know, they didn't want the other. They just wanted theirs. But, you know, couples being couples, they had to iron it out. Um, afterwards, it started happening more, and people invented a lot of nonsense about why it happened. Both are completely independent traditions. Both of them are completely complete and self-composed. They don't need anything from outside. There is essentially nothing that is gained by doing more than one. You can do everything in one. You can do everything in the other. They're just different cultures. However, it has come to be the way things are done. However, traditionally in Cuba, people who do it well keep them in their own lanes, as I say. So you do a spiritismo, you do ocho, you do palo, but you do them separately in separate physical spaces, and you don't overlap the pantheons and the practices. That's when it's done right. Of course, otherwise you have a complete mess. And a lot of people out there have complete messes. Um, I'm a stickler. Um, <laughs> how does how does the spiritismo fit in all of this? Well, this is kind of the neutral ground. The spiritismo developed in Cuba out of several sources: one North American spiritualism, and the other Carnivism. Um, and it developed over the course of the later latter half of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th and several different separate popular espiritismos evolved. Um, it, the names that are used for them, mostly by people observing them rather than the people who practice it, are uh, Cordon, Caridad, and Cruzado. Um, most people who practice just say they're spiritistas and they leave it for you to figure out what they're doing. Uh, since these are mostly geographically defined, cordonistas are mostly in eastern Cuba, uh, Cruzado is mostly in the area around Havana and Matanzas, and some overlap in between, um, it's not too hard. And then you have cardicism, which in Cuba is called scientifico. And that's the spiritismo of the book. And they kind of look down their nose at everybody. Um, but cruzado, which is what I do, is a tradition of the spiritismo. That's, it, the term cruzado means mixed. Uh, so it's the spiritismo practice that is practiced alongside or parallel to or by people involved in one or another or multiple Afro-Cuban initiatic religions. Um, <clears throat> Cruzado is a word like any other words, have more than one meaning. So it can also mean mixed up, crossed, um, in the popular parlance, screwed up. And Depending on which meaning for the word comes to mind in the mind of an espiritista, 
hearing somebody call their practice cruzado, they'll either say, oh, yeah, that sounds like what I'm doing, or no, not at all. What I'm doing is I'm doing right. It's not mixed up. (laughs) So you know that. But the terms are useful for people first becoming acquainted with these things so that you can understand what the playing field is. Okay. So, so, Cruzado is kind of the place that a lot of people get introduced to um, one or another Afro-Cuban religion in Cuba. Somebody says, oh, you know, my aunt's an espiritista, you need to go see her. And, you know, they'll do a misa or they'll do a registro, whatever it is at the moment. And they'll say, well, you know, you got the spirit. And they're talking about Arishas or they're talking about Paulo or something else. So maybe you need to go talk to somebody in one of those. And they'll send you off there or they'll take care of whatever you've got going on at the moment, uh, regardless of that. So it has kind of developed itself as a place that is, you know, the corner where all of these things almost, but not quite, intersect. And as a result, over decades, uh, Espiritismo in the 20th century ended up being a component, at the very least, in initiation. Everybody gets the Misa before they go on to either do Palo and get Rayado or do Ocha and do Cariocha, whatever. They have to have their Misa first. Just like everybody to do those things has to be baptized first. And it is kind of the middle ground. It's also because Ocha and Paolo are very ritual heavy and you do things and you get things and you get involved in a lot of rituals. They're mostly involved in ritual and physical activity. And of course, in, in possession rituals. But they're not really very big on actually doing the kind of internal development. And Espiritismo is where people begin to explore their personal connection with spirit, how spirit interacts with them and learns to develop the ability to recognize where messages are coming from and how they come to you. So it's invaluable, and it often gets ignored here. You know, people get it on the way to doing something else, and they get little explanations, and they get little training, and then it's sort of there on the side, and they don't really do anything with it. And then they come back years later and they say, well, you know, there's something still missing. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you kind of related to this is something I'm curious about is how the sort of intersection and the development of spiritism and spiritualism, like, because technically, I mean, they're so closely related, but at the same time, in a way, aren't they separate or were originally separate? Oh, yeah. Uh, Well, you know, the short answer is spiritualism developed in upstate New York, uh, in the burnt over counties, 
where a lot of other American spiritual movements evolved, like uh, the Shakers, like the Church of the Latter-day Saints, so forth and so on. It was a hotbed of transcendentalism, anarchy, socialism, and weird spirituality. Don't know what it is. Must be something in the water up there. <laughs> but the um, but the Finger Lakes. Maybe it's just the really long, cold winters. People had nothing better to do. Um, <laughs> but um, that's where a lot of things happened, and that, thanks to the Fox Sisters, spread all over the world rapidly, and. Um, it made its way within a couple of years, this is the 1850s, made its way in a couple of years to France, and uh, a fellow there who went by the pen name of Alain Kardec, who was not a medium, by the way, he was a an educational theorist, uh, got very fascinated by it, and the notion that one could approach spiritual phenomenon and the dead from a scientific matter uh, perspective. And he developed a big, long series of um, survey questions. And he handed out the survey to every medium he could find. And then he compiled all the results. And in the end, I have never seen the actual surveys, so I don't know how much of what he ended up publishing actually came from those surveys or how much of it came from his own imagination and inspiration. Um, but he developed a very complex view of the afterworld, uh, very much like um, theosophy. And it was um, a typically uh, Victorian hierarchical mess. Obviously, I am something of an anarchist, so you know, um, it was a little bit top-heavy for my taste. But it included, among other ideas, uh, the notion of spiritual evolution and working to purify and refine oneself, and also the notion of reincarnation. Um, I will note that very few followers of popular Spiritismo in Cuba, whether that's Cordon or whether that's Cruzado, believe in reincarnation. Mostly they're involved in ATRs, and those are more focused on the idea of ancestor reverence. So there's sort of a, um, a problem set up in that if you stop and think about what you're doing. You know, if you believe in reincarnation, then where the heck do all the ancestors go? Yeah, exactly. I was going to actually ask you about that specifically. Yeah. So you beat me to it. <laughs> so, uh, sorry about that. I should I should limit my answers so that you can talk more. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, you're the one that we want to hear talking. <laughs> well, you have to remember that for many years I worked as a college professor. So it was my profession to walk into a room and talk for four hours nonstop and well, the bell rang, shut up and leave. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally cool with us um yeah so as far as reincarnation that is an interesting conundrum because yeah like you mentioned if people are reincarnating where are the ancestors how are they still hanging around well 
I think that I have my own answers. Of course, I'm not going to try and answer for anybody else. Sure. But my my own take is this. Um, first of all, I've read an awful lot of um, quantum physics, not the popular, you know, pseudoscience stuff, but the real stuff. And uh, the discussions of spiritual-like questions as worked on by actual physicists and it's interesting material and one of the notions that is becoming more prevalent within physics even without touching on the spiritual questions it may raise is the idea that time really is a relative experience it's subjective and that quite possibly our brains create the notion of time. Um, and so our seeing time as a long line is predicated by human thought. And I would take it a step further, having looked at language and having looked at culture as uh, a folklorist and anthropologist and ethnographer, um, and having studied a lot of linguistics, although I'm not a linguist, a cultural phenomenon, because not all languages construct time in the same way. And the idea occurred, I won't claim it for myself, but it's one that I, I embraced when I came across it, that all of these events are pretty much equally spaced, that are constructing things in a linear fashion is a product of our creating memory from experiences we have and making sense of them. And so maybe it's not reincarnation so much as you can tap into all of this at any time. And so it's more like parallel worlds or universes or parallel lifetimes all happening as part of a soup of experience. Very interesting. That's, I love that answer. Um, I don't know where, I don't know where that's going to lead us, but you know, <laughs> well, it's interesting. I was just talking to a friend a little while ago about how there is sort of this, if you've ever done any esoteric work, which I think maybe you've tried something once, um, <laughs> um, there's sometimes there's this weird effect where you'll get results before you do it, or the spirits will come before you've even done the operation. Sometimes you don't even know you're going to do the operation, but then before things even happen, you'll experience these effects. Have you had that happen to you? Uh, well, that's, that's certainly one form of deja vu, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, certainly I've had some similar things. I've had a lot of experiences over the years that, uh, kind of fuddled the timeline, shall we say. And one of the other notions I'm going to bring up here, because it's, I think, quite relative, relevant to the matter, is the subject of dreams. Yes. And 
as far as far as I am concerned, dream is dreams are not something that we our brain just fabricates when we go to sleep, either to entertain us or to review whatever is going on in our brain. Uh, dreams are, in fact, every bit as real or maybe more real than our waking experience. They just tend to not be as uh, persistent a set of realities because we go to many different realities. And I like what one of my workbooks said once. When I was first getting introduced to this, uh, I had the good fortune that I had a godfather who actually believed in teaching, which most do not. Um, and uh, he quite conveniently brought down my own muerto to talk to me uh, so that I could actually give perhaps a very unorthodox thing, but it worked. And um, in the course of one conversation, this muerto said to me, Well, you know, when we come down in possession, we visit your world. But when you dream, you visit ours. Mm. So all, all of that is sort of, yeah, I hear exactly what you're saying, and I agree. I was just going to say, it seems as though if you are looking at esotericism and um, uh, your spiritual practice, uh, magic, in a linear fashion, you're, you're going to really be restricting uh Restricting how your your perspective. Mm -hmm. I think so. Um, and one of the things that I find especially interesting, and you know, you asked how I got involved in all of this, and other than saying that I found things or they found me, and I read, and then I, you know, I can't read things and not get involved in them if I'm if I like them and I'm interested. Parallel to all of this exploration of spiritual things, I began to develop, to develop in my grade school years a fairly vivid and active dream life. And it is perhaps, as a result, not particularly surprising that I get involved in ATRs because in all of them, as in all of the African traditional religions and the African diasporic tradition and the spiritismo and popular spiritismos in Cuba are part of that configuration in ways that perhaps cardicism is not. Dream is one of the most active ways of dealing with the spiritual realm and with the entities of these traditions. Yeah, I wanted to talk about dreams, dreaming as as it applies to mediumship, because um, it seems like yeah, it is one of one of the major ways of communication back and forth. Also, can could you dovetail in with your answer there, um, an, uh, a companion question, which is uh, how can we become most effective dreamers, and how can we use dreams most effectively to interact with the spiritual realm? Oh, sure. Dreaming is crucial, I think, to working with spirit. A lot of people, especially in Western society, have difficulty developing mediumship. It's not that they have difficulty doing it. They come 
with a lot of confused expectations. And they also come with a cultural sense that all of this isn't quite real because we live in a very material culture. And so even if we don't believe any of that, we've been trained at our earliest ages before we were able to exercise critical judgment to accept the notion that certain things are real and certain things are not. And so we got the message early on, our make-believe friends were make-believe instead of real friends that just some people can't see. And along with that, at least in my case, for many years I struggled with it because I had expectations of what it was going to look, feel, and be like that didn't quite match up with what I was experiencing. And so, you know, I went around for a long time thinking, why is it these other people can do all of this and I can't? Why can't I hear spirit? And of course, what it was is I was expecting it to sound like a phone call. And maybe for some people, it does sound like a phone call. And once in a while, for me, it does too. But there's an expression that it come, you come across in many different locations in slightly different ways about the soft, quiet, still voice within and learning to recognize the messages that come to you that will come to you in the way they come based in part on the spirits you deal with, as well as who you are and what your talents are, may be very different from the way it looks or feels or is experienced by others. And unfortunately, we often think, oh, you know, there's going to be this booming voice, and there isn't. And maybe the voice actually sounds like our own, or maybe it isn't a voice at all. Maybe you see things. Maybe you feel things, and you have to learn how to convert a physical sensation or an emotional sensation into words in some way in order to be able to deliver a message. That's a talent that takes, requires development. Um, and then as you develop, things progress and you know you kind of lose that sense of preoccupation with it. You may just have complete thought. And you know, then of course the problem is, well, you know, this isn't a message, I just thought that. Well, the question still remains, where does that thought come from? And is it really yours? Um, and that brings us up against the entire Western notion of boundaries. Because in the West, we like to put things in boxes and draw lines between things. And one of the big boxes that we hold on to desperately to keep quote-unquote sane is the notion that we're here in this body and nobody else is here in this body. Well, you're already breaking that model when you start dealing with a, a tradition that involves um, spirit possession. But the fact remains that, you know, extreme spirit possession, complete sub unconscious possession 
which you find in things like Orisha worship or in Palo or in Vodou, is one spot along the line. That same line can include a trajectory where there are lots of other guys who are passing through or knocking on the door or inserting a thought or a word or whatever else. Um, and we may not, the boundaries between us and the other may not be coterminous with our physical body. Sometimes they may extend beyond our body. Sometimes they may extend into our body and into our mind. And our mind can be a radio receiver as much as it is anything else. So all of that is relative, uh, relevant. And then you add the realm of dreams. Because in dreams, you can step outside all of those self-perceived limitations and interact with other beings. And you do so in a way that is natural and normal and sometimes really weird, uh, but it's really very helpful. Dreams are a significant part of mediumship. Like my motto said, when we visit you, it's called possession. When you visit us, it's called dreaming. They are two sides of the same coin. That's fascinating. Um, so how does one develop that skill, which I think is, is challenging but really important, of being able to discern in your own head, you could say, in your mind, the difference between the voice of, of the spirits and the one's own inner voice? Because sometimes it's super clear, radio clear, you can tell immediately that it is not your own thoughts, that it's like somebody took a megaphone inside your head and started talking. But other times, or outside your head, but other times, the influence, like you said, it may be more subtle. It may be more difficult to distinguish from our own inner voice. Could you recommend or describe how one develops the ability to make that distinction between the voice of, say, the ego or the personality and the voice of the spirits? Well, it's sort of like that old joke about uh, somebody stopping a guy on the street in New York and saying, how do you get to um, Carnegie Hall? And the guy looks at him and says, practice. <laughs> <laughs> practice. In a word, practice. You keep doing it. My own, there are people. There are a couple of ways that things happen. Uh, I'm sure there are many ways that things happen. I can only speak about my own experience and what I have heard of from others. There are some people who are blessed with this uh, where they just grow up and it's always that way. There are other people who have a uh, crisis of spiritual awakening where, you know, stuff suddenly starts happening and they think they're going crazy. Uh, and then there are other people who spend years and years and years trying to do this, uh, seemingly making no progress whatsoever. And then gradually it begins to happen. 
assuming they're lucky. Uh, I would have at one point categorized myself in that latter group until I reached a certain point and then it all shifted and I realized that that wasn't accurate at all. So what one does is one just constantly works at it. Being able to communicate with spirit requires understanding where you end and the other begins or where you and the other overlap uh, or whatever. Discovering your other others within you because you have these spirits that travel with you. And uh, ultimately, we can look at them from a spiritualist or an, or an African perspective, and these are distinct individual entities and consciousnesses. Um, or we can take these sort of Western scientific psychological approach and suggest that they are segments of self. In fact, I think both are really the same thing, and I would err more on the side of saying that they are individual and have their own volition, but um, I think there are times when it feels both safer and more comfortable to think of them as elements of ourselves. Um, I think both can be right simultaneously. I think basically here on this earth, most of us don't really have a clue. And so you can flip back and forth between those things. Um, and I also bring that up in relation to the, the issue we spoke of a moment or two back about reincarnation. So I believe in ancestral veneration, and that kind of precludes reincarnation, except there are times when reincarnation makes sense. Um, in all of this, if you are not comfortable with contradiction, please get off the bus right in front of St. Mary's Church. Go back to church and forget it. You know, they will, they will tell you a way to do things that is irrevocable, unambiguous, and one way. If you have problems with ambiguity, with variability, with inconclusiveness, don't go here. Because you've got to get comfortable with contradiction. It's the way everything is. Spirit is mutable. Spirit is not always quite as hard and physical and material, except, of course, when it is. <laughs> get my point? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And since we, we, I mean, we're on, you know, we took a pit stop on the bus at St. Mary's church. Yeah. So while we're here and in, you know, by the church, I'd like to go in the church for a minute. All right. And while we're in the church, looking around at the stained glass windows and at the beautiful image of Mary as the soul of the world, I wanted to actually ask you from the perspective that you're coming from a flexible uh, perspective that's uh, comfortable with ambiguity and the many layers of self and personality. Um, so in the ATRs, um, there is sort of a synthesis frequently. For instance, we see it very in a very pronounced way in voodoo um, with, well, Haitian voodoo, I should say, 
with Catholicism and with the saints mm-hmm. and with Mary and with Christ. And, you know, and in a way where if we're able to get out of cultural conditioning, uh, fundamentalist uh, brainwashing and browbeating, but into the actual essence of the spiritual streams, you know, it's a very fascinating way that the two have if, if inter intermixed and interwoven. And I was wondering if you could maybe share some of your reflections on that synthesis. Sure. Um, first of all, I will say things that will either confuse some people or anger others. And that's fine. You know, I'm not trying to win a popularity contest here. Um, I will also say, if you disagree with me, fine, that's your right. Uh, I'm not trying to say anybody's right or wrong. I'm just telling my right, you know, my truth in this. Uh, And that's a little bit as a practitioner. It's also no small amount as also an academic and, you know, an ethnic historian. Um, And that's a really sharp knife edge to walk because you walk along that edge of being both an academic, uh, a scholar, uh, an intellectual, and a priest and practitioner in a variety of traditions and you get damned by both sides and uh that can be tricky but the first thing i will do is say there's a wonderful myth about how african slaves enslaved africans in the americas use the imagery of the church to disguise what they were doing it's a myth. It was actually invented by academics toward the end of the 19th century, early part of the 20th. Um, among them, uh, Bascom, um, Ed, um, Cornero Bascom, um, and a few others. And it's a myth. It's a total myth. It's a very intelligent attempt to retrofit what they were seeing and come up with a logical explanation. But it was done outside of a context of knowing the actual histories. And those actual histories became more apparent, especially in the last quarter century of this past century, the 20th century. That still sounds weird. You know, <laughs> we're 20 years in, and I'm still not adjusted to that. But it comes from the fact that they were all looking at the West African and the Yoruba things. And although they knew that they were surrounded by Congo and Central African stuff all over the place, they chose to ignore most of it because it didn't fit the models that they liked. They were looking for something that would allow them to access the pure origins of African traditions and understand them. And the Yoruba looked like that because the Yoruba developed a form of mythology that paralleled European mythology quite closely. I mean, it wasn't in imitation, it just happened to have a similar structure. And that was, you have these complex families of spirits, entities, they're not gods, no, they're not gods. And, you know, they do all of the things that the deities of Europe, of classical Greece 
and Rome do. You know, they kill their brothers, they sleep with their sisters and moms, you know, um, and all of the rest of that. Uh, and so academics fell in love with that. Here we can study the survivals of African tradition. Uh, the reason those things were the way they were, in part, was there was a different culture involved. And the second part is most of the Yoruba showed up between the 1820s and the 1840s in Brazil and Trinidad and Cuba. And the Congo had been coming for centuries before. The other thing is Congo culture was very different. Uh, they didn't have the big, uh, grandiose mythology. They had some mythologies with storylines, but mostly they had what would be more like what we'd call folk tales about animals with pithy messages and proverbs and what they would call in, in Spanish, dichos, expressions. What in Irish, by the way, we call very often uh, three ruddy, three things. And then they'll, you know, there are three things that aren't real, three things that, so forth and so on. They're little pithy proverbs. Um, and it's a different way of looking at it. But in the last decade of the 1400s, the Portuguese showed up at what was known as uh, Congo de Antotola, or the Kingdom of Congo. And by the end of 10 years, the Mani Congo, or the King of the Kingdom of Congo, converted to Christianity. Not by force, by choice. And with him, of course, the country converted. Because that's the way things work. And they worked that way in the Congo, they worked that way in Europe. Um, and the average Congolese embraced it because there was a methodology in Congo tradition of what they called periodic renewal, which meant when things got stuck and there needed a social change, they took all of their spiritual paraphernalia, all of their inkisi, all of their statues, all of their equipment, and they tossed it in a bonfire and they started over. And this happened again and again and again. And in essence, adopting Christianity was to them the same thing. And about 150 years later, a woman named Dona Beatrice or Don Betelesi Kimpevita did the same thing again, and she took the crucifixes and threw them in the fire, calling them Nkisi, or, or medicine, because Nkisi doesn't mean spirit, it means medicine. Um, and they adopted Christianity. In the process, of course, they made it their own. And one of the things that Donna Beatrice did, she became possessed by St. Anthony. And big surprise after the church, because that by that time the Capuchins were in control of the hierarchy in the Congo, um, convinced the king to execute her as a heretic. Now, the king did it for his own reasons, because it, she started meddling in politics. Um, lo and behold, tons of Antonians, as they were called, Antonians, were enslaved and sent to the Americas. This was about 1600. 
1607, something around then. And in every place where these traditions exist, one of the main spirits, whether it's in Haitian Vodou, whether it's in Afro-Cuban religions, in the plural, whether it's in Brazil, in various Afro-Brazilian religions, is Saint Anthony. And Saint Anthony, in most cases, is pretty closely equated with the same thing. He's the keeper of the door. So whether that is Lucero, whether that is Elewa, whether that is Eshu, whether that is Legba, you find a similar thing happening across cultures, across Congo and across West African cultures of several nations. And that is where, rather than some creativity, the notion of equating saints with African spirits derived. The Yoruba borrowed it because it was convenient. And it was convenient because, you know, you didn't have the time or the availability to create the kinds of artwork that had been possible in a more stable society in Africa. You were enslaved. You didn't have time for creativity. So you used what was available. And they were very creative at finding the imagery within Catholic saints that resonated with the spirit. And the spirits were down with this. This worked. You know, what works, works. So that's kind of how all of that happened. And it makes an awful lot more sense. And besides, nobody was being fooled by anything. They all knew what was going on. In Brazil, we have records that the Brazilian courts actually would call in African diviners to help decide guilt or innocence. This is in written records. So everybody knew what was going on. The only time they objected and the only time they really persecuted African religion, because the church was one thing, but civil society was another, then, just as it is now, for the most part, was when there was a fear that this was going to be used for revolts on the part of enslaved Africans. And then they would come down hard. All of this kind of, all of this kind of stuff, by the way, is well documented in more recent academic research and historical research. People like John Thornton, uh, Jansen, uh, Wyatt McGaffey, Robert Ferris Thompson, uh, in a variety of academic professions. Many of those people, by the way, I won't say who, but a couple of them anyway, have been initiated in one or another tradition. I know Robert Ferris Thompson's pretty upfront about that. So the problem is, Popular culture usually lags about 30 or 40 years behind what people are discovering in academia, and it takes a while to filter out. So that's a real long-winded answer. Bring me back to Earth. <laughs> what did I answer? What did I not answer? I think Janice has something for you. I saw his microphone turn on. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't know why it turned off. But yeah, I was just saying that was fascinating, and thank you. That was awesome. Um, I have couple things for you here first so would you say then that 
because you know over the years you you will encounter people that'll say oh no they're just masks for the insert here orisha inkisi lua and then other people say no no you know it's colonialism this and that but really like when it comes to the saints and the spirits i almost feel as if i hear you saying it's not an either or thing it's a both and thing well there are a couple of different ways to look at it and the only reason I argue about the mask thing is because a close examination of history tells us nobody was being fooled by anything. So hiding behind it would only really work if everybody back then was as intelligent as the POTA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. I am something of a political creature yet. Uh, <laughs> anyway, but there is a view of it, there are a couple of views of this and a couple of little nuances I'd like to make without getting too long-winded and forgetting where I'm at. One is that spirits I deal with have no problems with it. They're comfortable with the imagery. They like it. It works. And since I'm fond of it, it works for me too. One thing is I think it's important to note that it isn't, in fact, a dimming of African tradition it isn't an enforcement from outside by by the enslaver. It's really an incredible sign of the rich imaginal and visual creativity of African culture. That they can see other things and see their own in things that come from other cultures and are able to adapt and adopt to them in ways that are self-affirming. It's incredible, an incredible creativity, not a diminishing of culture. Um, human cultures borrow. It's a different thing from um, appropriating, and there are power differences here that are important to keep in mind. But ultimately, all Christianity was adopted at one point, too. Uh, on the other hand, there's also another way of looking at it besides syncretism. Syncretism, by the way, was the word that was invented in academia in looking at early Christianity in Greece. So it wasn't first used in relation to Africa. It was actually used in relation to the early development of Christianity. However, there's a fellow named, and I believe he's in Michigan, I think he's still teaching, named Eugenio Matibag. He's Cuban. And he wrote a book on Afro-Cuban uh, religion in, narr- in Cuban narratives. And he, the basis of his great book, uh, well worth reading, and not much talked about, but his basic argument, and when it's an interesting thing about going back and looking at things again, the first time I came across this book as a grad student, I read it, and I totally rejected it. And a friend of mine, who's interested in a lot of the same subjects, uh, told me about the book. Have you seen this? And I said, yeah, I wasn't too impressed. And he says, really? No? Why not? And that convinced me to take a second look at it. 
So about six to eight months later, I reread the book and I had a completely different take on the book the second time I read it, which is a reminder, go back and look at things more than one time because your own thinking may evolve and change over time. We don't have to get fossilized. Um, but his theory and his, his understanding of it is it's not syncretism. It's a system of multiple references. And he argues that Cuban society is a culture that evolved on an island in the Caribbean with a bunch of different cultures intact. You had Yoruban, the Lukumi, you had Fong, the Arara, you had Palo, which was a variety of different Central African groups, mostly Congo. You know, you had the Abakwa, who were a um, fraternal order from the Cross River, Efo, and Efik people. Um, and then, of course, in Eastern Cuba, you have the Haitians and Vodou. Um, and as a matter, of course, you have overarching all of this, the European overlord and the Catholic Church. And people had to talk to one another across their cultural divide. And these cultural divides, even though they were all Cuban, were more solid than they might appear to an outsider. So the Cubans developed sort of a system based largely on what the Congo did, because the Congo were the predominant force. They kind of narrowed down what entities, what spirits, what areas of spiritual influence were most significant in this island. And then everybody kind of settled on who was what in their own sphere. And then they sort of said, okay, we're going to make like a, uh, let, let's assume that for a moment that we're looking at a um, chart on a blackboard and little rectangles and they're drawing lines between them. We're going to draw lines between these, you know, and so you have the church and you have the Congo and you have the Lukumi and you maybe have one or two other things, but they all get equated. And it's not that Chango is Santa Barbara is in Sassi or Siete Rayos, but they are the equivalent in this ultra other cultural manifestation. And it appealed to me as an idea. And then I went back again and visited with the man I had studied with and become initiated by my godfather in Cuba. And we're talking. And one day, you know, I'm with him while he's doing consultas. And a woman comes in and she's got a particular issue going on. And, you know, he does this divination. He says, well, you know, Siete uh, Rayos needs something from you. And she, he kind of looks at her, and she, it's obvious that the light did not go on. And he says, oh, well, you know, Chang'o uh, says, and the light still did not go on. You know, there was like a confused look on her face. And she says, he says, you need to go to the church and light three candles to Santa Barbara. and the light went on. So they are functional parallel. So they are and they aren't, but 
Santa Barbara, Chango, and Fiaterayos or Insasi all occupy the same kind of spiritual area of energy and energy patterns as one another. And so they can be used as a shorthand. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's all the same thing. It's more like they are parallel. Well, and this is another example of the kind, I feel like this interview is really interesting because you're almost um, teaching people how to think about things too, because there is definitely this comfort. You have to have this comfort with flexibility, with a certain amount of uh, ambiguity, with a sort of, again, both and rather than either or, you know, in that to me, that's an inherently hermetic perspective in the true sense, like Hermes or Mercury. Like it, mm-hmm. it is this ability to be <clears throat> fluid with these things and not get caught up on the names or images so much as the actual uh, objectively existent and subjectively, subjectively existent beings. Yeah. Now, um, could you, I feel like something that's kind of neglected except in specific circles, and I know it's a big part of your work and spirituality. Uh, could you just talk a little bit more about specifically Congo spirituality and, and magic, um, what it is as its own identity, and uh, also how it has impacted your life and, and is, uh, I, as far as I understand, it's a, a very important part of your practice. Oh, it is my practice. <laughs> um, that's an incredibly broad question to try and wrap around. So um, I became the long and the short of it is I was originally when I was looking at Afro-diasporic religions way back in my teens give you some perspective I am now 64 so in the 1960s I first became aware of and I can't tell you exactly which one was first Afro-Cuban things, mostly uh, quote-unquote Santeria, including books that talked about, you know, Apollo, the dark side of Santeria, um, and which I laugh about hysterically now, and New Orleans Vodou and Haitian Vodou and uh, Brazilian Umbanja. And I became rather quickly fascinated with the Brazilian stuff and drawn to the Haitian and the New Orleans material as most accessible. And actually the very first organized traditional rituals I ever attended were all Haitian Vodou. But um, I didn't quite know, you know, I was beginning, only beginning to discover these things. And at first, through only books that were written for popular audiences. So it took me a long time to become a little more um, attuned to nuances. But it was when I was in grad school that I finally figured out enough to know why the draw to certain things. As I started to do my work in grad school, and part of why I, I was doing the folklore was, you know, I had kind of a pact with some spirits. I wasn't sure quite whom to 
I will do work if you will help me do it, because I felt I had to. Uh, I wasn't quite sure with whom or anything of the sort, but I trusted on blind faith and uh, began to explore a whole lot more the Afro-Cuban, and I found myself much more drawn again to uh, both the, the Haitian and to the Brazilian, especially Umbanda. Um, and I didn't quite know why. And I had a friend uh, who was a grad student with me in folklore at Penn, and she kept telling me I had to read Cabrera. I had to read Cabrera. So, you know, I set down my books in Portuguese and I started looking at Lydia Cabrera's work in Spanish. And, of course, like everybody, I looked first at El Monte, because that's the big one. And that's impossible, because my Spanish wasn't good enough at first. Uh, and El Monte is a book that will challenge a lot of native Spanish speakers, much less an Irishman. And so I kept reading. And I came across a little book called La Regla Condisa del Santo Cristo del Buen Viaje, written by Lydia Cabrera. And it was like 103 or 112 pages, something like that. So it's a teeny book. Uh, and it was about a branch of Palo called Kindisa. And I read this book, found it much easier to read. And the moment I read that, I knew where home was. It was this. It just had the kind of thing, and I didn't understand the half of it the way I do now, of course, 25 years into being a kindisero. Um, But I um, read it, and that changed the focus of my studies. I was no longer thinking of going to do research in Brazil. I had to go to Cuba. And that sent me into a realization of why I was drawn to certain things. And the reason I was drawn so much to what I was reading about the quote-unquote Orisha worship of Umbanda was that there was really so much more that was Congo in that than there was anything Yoruba. Uh, I didn't understand that at the time. And of course, a lot of people still don't get that, but there is. Um, Not just the name, but the actual practice. So that was the start. Congo traditions is what lit me up. Still don't know quite why, but it is. It was home for me. And I loved the music. I learned everything I could about it. Um, and I loved the approach to everything. It's more fiery. It's more direct. It is less, to use the European art term, less Baroque. Uh, Very interesting. <laughs> less Rococo. It's, it's earthier, and it's hotter, and it's, I suppose, in all of those reasons, it's so much more Irish, too. <laughs> but I fell in love with Central African things, and then I began to read the history of Central Africa and learn about how all of that worked, and it just felt right to me. That was home. And... A spiritismo fit into that. We're going to get back to spiritismo here for a moment. In all of the Afro-Cuban religions, it's different from Brazil, but in Cuba, uh, the first thing you do is you you got to be baptized. You know, a lot of people are going to get upset with that. 
especially sort of the those who have gone into the re-Africanization, and I get that, and I'm not going to crit- critique it at all. But in Cuba, traditionally, you're not going to get initiated into any of this if you aren't first baptized in the church. So the first thing my godfather asked me before anything, you are baptized, right? And I said, yeah. He said, good. Then we don't have a problem. And the second thing after that is they throw a Misa. Now, of course, in America, everybody thinks the only thing that happens in the Spiritismo is Misa. That's not true. Um, but they have condensed it into basically a one-stop uh, event en route to either getting scratched in Palo or getting into Ocha or both along the way. And they steamroll you into this. Boom, 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 boom. And you have your Misa. Most people, if they're not, you know, native Spanish speakers or grow up with it, don't even understand half of what's happening during the Misa and will recall less of it. And then they get told, oh, you create a bovida, you set it up. Once a week, you light the candles and you change the water and you say a couple of prayers. And that's as far as anybody goes. And for quite a few years, that was more or less all I did with and gradually they started saying, you know, hey, guy, you know, uh, we're here. We want to talk to you. And I began to explore it. And the Espiritismo really is pretty essential in all of this, at least in the Afro-Cuban context, because it's where most people can, it fills the space that's sort of the interstices between the different traditions. It's the, the, the neutral medium ground between the two battle lines, so to speak. And it's where a lot of people end up going at first when they're beginning to have some kind of spiritual event that needs to be dealt with. And very often spirits will point you in different directions. And Espiritistas have been very cognizant of that and have kept it a neutral territory. They don't overstep the bound. They don't try to dictate to the different religions, but they'll point to them. And um, it's also very important because it's the only really um, spiritual science in Cuba where you deal with the internal experience. In Palo and in Ocha, for example, there's a lot of ritual work that's external. You do rituals, you learn songs, you do prayers, you do um, trabajo, working. You have a ritual vessel, be they pots of the Orisha or prendas of Palo, whatever. All of these things are external. And, you know, possession happens, and that's also something you don't experience because you're unconscious during it. Espiritismo is where you develop your psychic sensitivity. And it's noteworthy that at least in Espiritismo Scientifico, the Cardicist version, not necessarily Cruzado, spirit, uh, possession is often a semi-conscious or a conscious possession. 
as opposed to the fully unconscious possession of the Apollo or uh, Ultra. And so it's really significant because it allows people to begin to develop their own awareness of spirit, their own communication with spirit. And I find that when I do readings and I offer counseling to people because my spirit started pushing me and saying, look, you know, uh, the way things are here, people aren't learning it. They're not getting what they need. You know, readings will allow you the format where you can actually explain to people who don't have access to larger communities um, or who maybe don't have the language skills, uh, how, who they have with them and how to deal with them. And a lot of people come back to me and say, well, you know, we did that reading and things have begun to move for me. You know, I'm beginning to get some communication. It makes a little more sense. Not always. I mean, sometimes they got more work to do. But very often, it helps give them the push they need. And it is a system that doesn't require long periods of tutelage because your tutors are your spirits. Your experience is internal. I want to talk, um, if you don't mind, more specifically about the spirits, um, the different uh, groups of spirits, the different types of spirits, um, maybe the commissiones. But before that, kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about, is there a um, is it a relevant concern? Is it a concern in the community where you might have people who aren't as as developed or may even have some mental instability? Um, and they aren't able to differentiate necessarily between maybe their own uh, thoughts and and what they perceive as spirits. Is that is that a concern in the community? I'm just curious. Oh well, I think that's a concern in any kind of metaphysical or spiritual or psychic community. Yeah. There are people who get it, and there are people who don't. And you know the the normal caveat is to say you know. Um, if you're experiencing a lot of emotional uncomfortableness or physical symptoms, go see a doctor, go see a psychologist. You know, those are the priests of our society. And a lot of them actually do know some of what they're doing, although I am not on board with everybody 100%. There are different solutions for different issues and uh you know apart from any erstwhile legal concerns uh there are a lot of people who use readings and that kind of thing in ways that are just not appropriate yeah yeah okay um and you know even people who have their heads screwed on pretty tight uh often overuse stuff you know, by all means, work with spirit. By all means, check in with them. By all means, if you need to, see a diviner. But, you know, come on. You can you can decide what flavor of ice cream to get without having to check in with your mortar. <laughs> right. And, and sometimes, sometimes, the thing is, sometimes people need to see a psychiatrist. 
because they can't differentiate. Other times, people who are seeing a psychiatrist maybe need to see an espiritista. And um, I will tell you an interesting example of a case. I was, when I was still at Penn, I was walking down the street one day, I was 43rd Street, um, and there was a homeless fella on the other side of the street walking along, pretty shabby condition, lots of hair, and unkempt, and he was engaged in a very, very, very animated conversation with people you could not see. And I'm walking along, you know, across a fairly broad street from him. Um, it was during lunch hour. And as I'm watching him, it occurred to me, oh, you know, I think that guy is actually possessed. And as soon as I had that thought, it was about where we were passing one another on opposite sides of the street, maybe a little off. He stopped, he stared across at me and said, oh, you can see us. And then he kind of shook himself and walked on. Wow. So the answer is, as in many other things, yes. <laughs> There's a little of both. The overlaps are distinct. And sometimes it's just a matter of what people need. And in a lot of respects, a psychologist is not that different from an espiritista. And an espiritista is not that different from a psychologist. And it's worth noting, one of the most famous names in psychology in the 20th century was, of course, Carl Jung, Carl Gustav Jung. And Jung, in his early days, was strongly influenced by late 19th century spiritualism and wrote some papers on it and the like. So his own experience in which he delved into a lot of more Gnostic approaches to things uh, still was very, very strongly influenced by the same stream of spirituality. Absolutely. So would you mind getting into the, the, the different kinds of spirits? Because it's obviously central to this conversation, the spirits that, that sure. are available to spiritistas sure. and to uh, anyone else who is uh, open, open to that. Okay. Um, because, because like in different traditions, you know, you have, you have, uh, you know, so many different types, there's troops and nations and courts and, uh, you know, is there overlap too? I mean, you know, is when you're say you're doing a a reading for somebody and you're getting into what their spiritual cord is, which we should probably touch on what that means. You know, are you going to run into Lua or Arisha or you know, for that matter, you know, maybe Vanir of the Norse? You know, like uh, you know, I, I'm curious to hear how that works within the context context of what you do as well. But also, not to make it even more loaded of a question, but can we also maybe talk about the distinctions and overlaps between the dead and the spirits such as 
you know, Lua, Orisha, Inkisi, mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Sure. Uh, I will probably stress out a few people. They're all the dead. From my perspective, they're all the dead. And from a lot of other perspectives, they're all the dead. Um, take, for example, Chang'o, the great Orisha of, you know, Lightning, the drummer, uh, the king of Oyo, uh, you know, the, one of the main Orisha in all of the Orisha traditions. He was a king, and he was transposed into an Orisha. Uh, the Kikongo term for God is Zambi Mpongo, shortened to Zambi. Zambi, by the way, just means person. Zambi Mpongo essentially means, uh, can be translated as the original person. So in a real sense, they're all elevated ancestors. Uh, the Lua are similar. Many of them are simply spirits of the dead. And in fact, in the um, Asson tradition, which is what most people know of as being Haitian Vodou, although there are other traditions that are in some ways quite significantly different, people have what they call a potet. And a potet is a little pot that encases you know, your own spiritual essence with that of your metet and so forth. I'm uh, simple, oversimplifying that, and probably there will be people who will say, oh, no, that's not quite right. But for the sake of, of our conversation, it's sufficient to say that the vessel that contains the spiritual elements that relate to one's individual spiritual reality. Um, these, when the the Vodou science or the Serviteur Loi dies, they have a disunion and they, they end up breaking these uh, to allow the spirit to go on. Um, these are the same things that eventually may lead the spirit of an individual to become a loa. So there is an understanding that there is a range of elevation, much like you find spirits elevating within the concepts of spiritismo. Okay. Now, spiritismo shares a form that is found in um, Umbanja in particular. There are some parallels in some other traditions, uh, but those can be over uh, exaggerated. Um, in Vodou, you have many different nations, but these are kind of the nations that made up the populace of, of Haiti, and they're all subsumed under one tradition. However, for the most part, with the exception of a Sogwe tradition, people in a particular family or tradition in Vodou practice within one nation. It's only in the uh, Sogwe tradition um, of temple Vodou that developed in the, in the teens and the 20s and 30s in uh, urban Haiti, mostly in Jacques Mel and Port-au-Prince and Lille Game, that 
in the South that um, a lot of these began to merge. Up in the North, there's some places where they kind of merge them all into one and they don't distinguish. Uh, so, you know, you would have Petro and you would have uh, Rada all practice together and they don't, they don't even use the term. Other places, it's Hong Kong or it's Congo Mongang and it's something else. And uh, so there are different forms there than what you see in uh, Cruzado and in Umbanda. In Umbanda and Cruzado, it's fairly clearly delineated that there are specific groups of spirit, and they may be nationalities, but they may be profession. In Umbanda, these are usually called linias or uh, phalanges, which is kind of a military term. In Cuban Espiritismo Cruzado, they are called um, one of three terms, and I only use one consistently. Corrientes, they can be called cuadros and they can be called commissiones or commissions. Um, I don't use the term corriente or cuadro to describe these groups because corriente refers also to the energy that passes between a spirit and the medium or an individual. Cuadro, which means frame or square, um, refers as in a picture frame refers to your individual grouping of spirits, which may come from different groups together. You may have a gypsy, you may have a Congo, you may have something else. Uh, that's your quadro, that's your group. And then commission or commission is the one I do use because that doesn't refer to anything else. So just for the sake of, of clarity, I avoid using the other terms which have multiple meanings. Commission is what represents these different groups. Most of them are ethnic. You know, Congo, African, not Congo, uh, Haitian, Gypsy, Chinese, and so forth and so on. Uh, and then there are a few professions. All of these things relate very closely to, and some of them are very close parallels to what you find in Umbanda, but all of these relate to very closely the different ethnic groups that you find in Cuban society, either past or present. These are all dead people. We don't have Loa, we don't have Orishas, we do not have Inquisi in Espiritus Cruzado. We have dead people, just dead people, okay? Now, some of them may be the deceased priests of Orisha or Inquisi or Loa. So, some of them will come up and say, oh, you know, you've got something going on with Arisha here, or you've got something going on with Paulo, or, you know, uh, you have something with a few Haitians here. And they can be kind of conduit to going out and exploring your possibilities in those other traditions. And very consciously, Espiritismo has taken on that role. So an awful lot of people's first introduction to these things comes through espiritismo, and then they get directed on. But a good and ethical espiritista will stop and say, oh, I'm not going to say anything more than you need to go talk to a palero. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One is you keep things in their lane. If you start mixing and matching too much, everybody gets confused. There are priests who are 
specially trained in those things. But the other thing is, espiritismo works as this sort of neutral ground. If people overstep those boundaries, and especially people who may have some vision, but don't have initiation, you know, that damages the role that espiritismo can play. And it makes people less inclined to deal with them. So there's both a political and social reason, as well as a spiritual one for keeping things within their lane. Now, I, I serve the law. I am also a palero. I can read. But if you come to me for a reading in Espiritismo, I'm not going to. I'm going to do my Espiritismo. And I'll say, well, you know, you know, you may have some spirits here that suggest that you might have a path over there. Maybe at some point you need to look at that. So I think that kind of answers some of that. It does. Yes, yes, it does. Um, yeah, I was also wondering how you separated the different lineages that you practiced, and that answered that question as well. Well, the other thing is you don't do anything in the same space. You not only don't overlap them in readings, and I have chewed even some people out that I know for, you know, um, or looked at them disdainfully from the distance sometimes, even people that, you know, are within my own house and lineage for making this mistake. You know, somebody comes to them for a reading and follow and they start talking about Arisha because they also do that. Yeah. You know, no, no, that's not cool. You know, tell them they also need to look at that maybe, but, you know, keep them as separate events because they are separate areas. And that's how it was done traditionally. And that's how, what keeps things within a good structure. It's easy to lose all structure and then you end up with a hot mess. And one of the things is when you keep those structures and you keep that, uh, those divisions, it's easier to distinguish where things are coming from. But you also keep them apart separately. I don't have, you know, I have, I have things from different religions. I do not have them in the same place. You know, my bovida is not going to be sitting on top of my prenda, and so forth and so on. I did want to ask you the place of animism in your perspective. Does it fit into any of these paradigms? And if so, how? If not, why? Animism. Well, how are you defining animism? Because I know several different definitions for it. I'm thinking personally of, of spirits inhabiting all things, um, always. So perhaps um, from the perspective of animism, you would see uh, rocks and trees, rivers, all uh, having spirits attached to them in a, in a basic sense. Uh, I don't think, I don't, I don't think in an a priori sense they do. I think it is possible for spirit to animate anything. I don't think it's a given that you look at a particular thing and there's a, definitely a spirit there. There may be. There may be there for a little while. There may be there for a long time by our sense of time. Um, but also, spirit can come and go and move. I think spirit is one thing and physical, physical, dense, 
object or another. Uh, they may overlap, uh, but I don't think it's fixed. I mean, I don't think that every rock is formed and it automatically has a spirit in there. I think a spirit may come along and decide to take up residence. And that sort of has been fitting with the concept behind the development of Congo medicine. Remember, as I said before, in Kisi isn't a spirit, it's a medicine. And medicine usually contains a spirit attached. But you create an object and then you put a spirit in there. So there's a sense that spirit can occupy things for some time. Uh, they may choose to do so on their own. They may choose to do so at the request of another. They may be there relatively permanently. They may be there temporarily. But just as we contain a spirit, when our body dies, uh, the spirit moves on. Okay, so uh, there is there is perspective that, that we kind of draw on uh, at times where, where things are imbued with the essence of certain uh, divinities, but it sounds like that isn't necessarily the case from what I'm understanding. Uh, I, I, what I would say is I, I take a more flexible, tentative view of it. I won't say no, but I won't say that it's necessarily a permanent condition for anything, any more for our bodies than it is for a rock. But, can inhabit any kind of vessel. I was going to say, well, the vessel thing in itself is fascinating because a human's, human head or soul could be a vessel. I mean, a bottle can be a vessel. A Congo packet could be a vessel. Mm -hmm. um, a puen. But, like, the, the thing is, you know, I also feel like we're getting back to that meta conversation here where, again, it's kind of helping you to see, helping us to, like, see a way of not just we're not just talking about technical here we're not just talking about ontology or the landscape of the spiritual ecosystem but we're also talking about a way of seeing where you know it's not one or the other we're learning to mm. or almost in that um magical sense of in-betweenness and being able to be being able to be at peace with the shifting and the changing and the fact that things are not every situation is equivalent and i think with working with the spirits the really that ability to uh, be comfortable with that in betweenness which i think incidentally you see in some uh, visionary art haitian visionary art uh, is really good i think at depicting that sort of uh chimeras mm. of the spirit world really in the in-betweenness of the magical state uh, between dreaming and waking between different states of consciousness and different states of being uh, with that said you know you are kind of renowned as a spiritualist as a, a spiritista and you do readings on a regular basis could you give a real quick um, rundown of what, what one of those readings looks like or what what those readings are good for for people um, and um, then maybe talk a little bit about also this super interesting boot camp you're doing. Okay. Uh, sure. Well, before I do that, I just wanted to say one other thing. Please do. And that is that to uh, kind of wrap up that last bit of conversation, um, 
fond of saying frequently, nobody died and made me God in their absence. So <laughs> although I apparently have been accused of often speaking very authoritatively and putting people off because, you know, I lay down the law and I can be very opinionated, <laughs> of course, um, <laughs> just because I'm right so much, of the time, you know, uh, mind you, my tongue is firmly embedded in my cheek if I'm saying that, okay? I get myself in trouble with my humor. Um, how do I want to put this? I am not arguing that, for example, that animism isn't a thing. I am expressing my own tentativeness about many, many things. I think one of the problems is we get far too literal, far too material about spirit, which is essentially an extremely flexible, indefinite, and fluid mm -hmm. world. And so I like to keep that fluidity and indefinity and all of that in play. I will express my opinions. They're real to me. I know them. They are seem to me self-evident and apparent at the moment. But you ask me tomorrow and I might disagree with me. We, we, yeah, we appreciate that perspective. <laughs> you know, so I'm, I don't try to fight with anybody as much as I enjoy a good argument because I'm Irish, you know? Um, and as I said, the Irish are only religious when they're looking for a fight. But um, I do try to stay really open and flexible about things. So all of that is a caveat that, you know, my truths are mine. And they may change on a daily basis, at least for a minute or two, even if there is a lot of consistency to them. Um, okay, so having having given that disclaimer there so that nobody can get angry with me, uh, they will anyway, and that's fine. I love it. Um, <laughs> what what do I do in a reading? Well, in, a, in what I would call a uh, spiritual quote reading, this is sort of the reading equivalent of having a, a, a Misa de Investigación. And they do them in Cuba. They just don't give them a title and they don't talk about it so much because most people's only interaction with the Espiritismo Cruzado is a Misa. In the U.S., you throw a Misa and you, many people never go to another one. Or if they do, they're a party, you know? And a lot of stuff happens. And it's, they're really great when they're done well, but they can be messy because, you know, uh, all sorts of things, people peopling. But um, in my readings, I was driven actually to do this against my will by, <laughs> by a few spirits who said, you really need to do this uh, because there's a need for it. And I didn't feel comfortable with it at first, but, you know, I got used to it. Uh, basically, what I do is I sit down, usually half of the reading is sort of a Spiritismo 101, a very truncated version of this course I'm going to be offering, uh, which evolved out of that as well, uh, which gives people some background, because most people don't know too much about what it is, like we've been discussing here today. Um, and then... Once we get through all of that, and I explain how that works, but we go through to see what spirits are currently identifying themselves as being present 
and accounted for with this individual. Um, because that can change over time too. It's not like Ocha or Apollo or even Vodou where you have main spirits who are likely to be there all your life. You may have a guardian spirit who's there for the long haul. You have a lot of people who come and go. So we go through who's showing up and what they do. Uh, in some cases, they'll give names. In some cases, they don't. And then we talk about how you can set up a bovada, how you can begin to work with these spirits. So that when someone is finished a reading, they have the bare minimum they need to be able to uh, make some use, even in a minimal context, of what I've just told them about. Because getting a reading is nice, but if you then go off and, you know, you still don't know what to do with it, what's the point? And being con one of the things about a spiritismo is if you work with a spiritismo and you deal with your own boda and your own spirit, you have a direct access. You don't need a Vodusan. You don't need an Olorisha. You don't need a Palero to work with a Bovada. You can do it yourself. You can address those spirits yourself. And in the readings, I try to give the minimum to get people started. Now, the boot camp, um, Crossing into Spirit, is the slightly nicer name I'm giving it, but it's in the Spiritismo Cusado Boot Camp is a month-long course that I've been threatening to give for a long time uh, and finally just got pushed into it recently. You know, again, by the same troublesome little disen disembodied entities uh, who like to make my life difficult. So they said, announce it now. So I did. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, some of the details are still evolving, but, um, you know, we're getting, we're getting a core of people who are signed up for it and, um, it will start in January after the holiday, um, which gives me time to take care of all of the technical stuff. It's going to be four lectures recorded and, uh, then there will be live forum text communication going on. Um, I'm not sure quite yet how I'm going to frame that. It may be that we'll do that simultaneously, but I'd really rather, you know, have the forum open after, you know, immediately after the lecture is over so that people are actually paying more attention to that than they are to talking to each other and saying hi 4,000 times and all the other things that people normally feel they have to do in one of these forums. Um, but that will allow for some discussion and question and answer to fill that out. And then also, of course, because sometimes people have to actually, you know, sit on these things for a while and process, <laughs> those chat forums will be there asynchronously throughout the month so people can come in and post comments or questions within the group context or to uh, text message to me directly within that 
within the context of that forum throughout the time the course is going on. And it will cover basically all of the things that I do in, in one of the readings, but in much greater depth and length. That sounds great. So how do people find that boot camp and, and how do they find what you're, how do they keep up with what you're doing? Right now, they can go check out my page on Facebook. Um, they can also join up to WeMe, MeWe rather, I'm sorry, I keep getting that wrong, MeWe. Uh, that's MeWe.com and send a request to friend me there. My name on MeWe is Owen Ballard. It is not um, Owen Craig Ballard. The reason I put my middle name in on Facebook is because I came across another Owen Ballard wow. with my spelling <laughs> and wanted, wanted to make sure that this poor kid living in Derry City in the north of Ireland wasn't inundated by messages from people that he couldn't quite fathom. <laughs> so, you know, we, we became friends and we connected and, you know, I changed it so that there would not be that confusion. Uh, but in MeWe, I was the first in there. So I just used the Owen Ballard because it, it sounds less pompous than to have <laughs> three names. And also because the, the standard form in Spanish is to have two surnames. So a lot of people started addressing me as, you know, Dr. Craig or uh, Mr. Craig rather than Ballard. And Craig is my middle name in, you know, a non-Latino kind of context. So it was actually a uh, great-grandmother's maiden name. So part of the family. But um, so you can go to MeWe and friend me. And I have a forum there uh, on Espectismo Cruzado now, uh, where I am gradually populating the forum with all of the messages that I've been posting over the last couple of years on Espectismo um, at various times on Facebook, so that they're all available to peruse at once. Not quite there yet, but we're working on it. And I imagine that the actual boot camp will be hosted on MeWe, not on Facebook, because it has a forum that's actually very good for doing that. So I'll be able to include graphics apart from the audio tracks and apart from the uh, text forum, but all within a single page. So it'll be nicely unified. Owen, this has been really fantastic. You provided a ton of really fascinating information and I think maybe cleared up some things that were maybe a little bit foggy. Um, Janice, do you have anything before we go? Uh, on a humorous note, you know, this conversation is going to instigate all kinds of like wars and, you know, <laughs> People saying, no, that guy doesn't know what he's talking about. But um, just kidding, though. Like, it was awesome, fantastic. All I, all I can tell you is I've done this for 25 years. I was initiated to, into everything I do in Cuba. By the way, in, 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 
in in relation to in relation to voodoo, although I've been a practicing member in a couple of different, basically of Thogway houses in the United States at one time or another. Um, my main practice is the Cuban version of Haitian voodoo, and the eastern half of Cuba is largely Haitian. Actually, my wife family is half Haitian. Uh, her grandfather was from northern Haiti. And uh, so that's where all of that comes from. Um, my truth is my truth. I know people will always argue with me. Uh, but, you know, they're entitled to their positions and I'm cool with it. I'm not trying to fight anybody or upset anyone. I just am the stickler for my understanding of things. And I, I'm I'm onboarded with that for sure. And I, I want to also mention that I have had um, more than one reading with Mr. Ballard, and I can attest to their accuracy, uh, their efficacy, and I have also experienced the really interesting uh, thing that happens where yes, I have I've, I have had changes start happening after the reading. Things start moving, spirits start coming in, uh, just from doing a reading. It was really interesting. Uh, so I can personally attest to this gentleman, and I wouldn't have gotten another reading from him if I didn't say if I didn't find something from it. In fact, it was just really interesting. Synchronicities happened. Very helpful for me to understand my own spiritual makeup. So I strongly recommend it. And. All of this ought to be a whole lot of fun, too. Yes. Yeah. And that's the key. I want to end it on that note. Like, that's the thing. Like, this is work, but it's also fun and interesting. And that's the key, I think, is it's a lot of fun and really interesting. And it just gets more fun and more interesting the harder you work at it. And I I think you're a perfect Mm -hmm. example of that. And I want to express my gratitude to you, Tata, for coming on the show for talking, for teaching, for helping us to understand these nuanced and deep matters. And we hope you understand that we wish you the very, very best in all of your endeavors. And I wish both of you and everybody else all of the same thing. And, you know, you jokingly said we'll start wars, but I know there are people who are ready to do battle (laughs) and I'm not interested in it. There's plenty of... I fought plenty of battles. Um, at 64, I want to get along with people. Even the people I don't get along with and don't particularly want to deal with, I wish them well. Uh, there's room for everybody out there. I'm not trying to compete with anyone, and I don't think competition's the good approach, either in spirit or in anything else. Totally agree. And what's interesting is 64 is the number of squares in the... Uh, planetary square of Mercury, uh, who is the um, sort of guardian angel of our show. And so we also want to mention that we dedicate the merits and benefits generated by this discussion and by the show to uh, the benefit and upliftment and illumination of all sentient beings, including discarnate beings. And we want to thank Lord uh, Hermes Mercurius Trismikistos for being our guide, protector, and patron in all things. And and with that, I will stay 64 for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. Have a great day. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye. Okay, that was an awesome conversation. Thank you again, Tata Owen Ballard. Um, I really enjoyed the alternate uh, kind of perspective on how spirits work. I think typically we come from more of a, a, a Neoplatonic place when we're talking about spirits and spirituality. So it's it's always good to kind of switch it up and and expand your perspective a little bit. Absolutely. It was great. Um, it was really important, I think, where we talked about not only the specifics of different approaches, traditions, the contrast between spiritism and spiritualism, and the way that they interacted and interfaced and produced some of these new world traditions. But also, I like the discussion about being comfortable with ambiguity and the sort of meta conversation we had about about that, about the flexibility and openness, and you know, when you're working with spirits, not getting stuck on a particular model or paradigm, but being willing to, you know, uh, roll with the punches, so to speak, and be open to new perspectives. I also think that it was very significant, uh, the discussion about St. Anthony and his prominence in several New World traditions of uh, spirit magic and spirit work. He's a really big figure, really important figure uh, as a saint and as a spirit. And, uh, you know, really blows me away, his prominence. And I don't really hear a lot of talk about St. Anthony. I think maybe he's not uh, as glamorous as uh, some of these other saints that are hot, uh, high on the charts right now. But, <laughs> you know, he's a very powerful spirit, very powerful being. And however you choose to approach him or see him, I think that uh, he's kind of crucial. Yeah, no, great point. And uh, I really did enjoy Tata On's uh, kind of differentiating with the mediumship on, um, you know, there's not just necessarily one type of medium. And just he talks about it on his blog as well, just the different types of mediums. Um, whether it's auditory or dreams, it, it really kind of expands the playing field and uh, makes the spirits more accessible, I think. And as an aside, right after we spoke to him and did the podcast, I uh, went to a service at uh, the Buddhist temple here. And afterwards, I spoke with the sensei about some of the topics that we talked about, specifically spirits ancestors and reincarnation and he had said something that kind of opened my eyes a little bit he said that people are reincarnated as as ghosts sometimes so you may reincarnate as a person in your next life or you may reincarnate as a ghost so that for me helped kind of uh, put that conversation into perspective and i think it was maybe a valuable uh, maybe thing to mention now that is an interesting nuance. Uh, there's a lot of places you could go with that. And, uh, you know, I think s- that would serve for contemplation because you can unpack that in a variety of ways. Yeah, totally. But it helps make it all kind of coalesce a little bit, a uh, little bit better, at least for me. Yeah. I want people to, to uh, you know, if they're interested in learning about working with spirits, spiritism, 
to be to feel comfortable reaching out to Owen because he is a wise, funny, friendly, highly intelligent, highly experienced individual. I think that in that magical world these days that exists, and it's been this way probably since since you know the beginning of the swirlings of the galaxy, but you know there's just a jungle out there, and there's a lot of people who are exploitative or you can't always trust everyone that you deal with in these traditions and among magicians in general. And he's somebody I've found consistently to be honest, forthright, trustworthy, credible, uh, very credible person. And uh, he's just, his readings are good and his advice is rock solid. I think that if, People have curiosity or interest. They might want to consider reading from him or uh, taking the Espiritismo boot camp. If people are especially uh, serious about learning how to work with uh, directly with spirits and spirit courts and troops of spirits, uh, he, 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 if you want to learn from somebody, he's the person to learn from. And we didn't even touch on the fact that Owen was also a pupil of uh, a well-known magician, uh, you know, root, root worker, uh, practical magician uh, who wrote many books. You know, so there's just so many dimensions to him. Well, Freemasonry, Freemasonry as well. We didn't even touch on that, but he's, he's really big in the Freemasonry. And esoteric Freemasonry, exactly. So it's like, could we have gone two hours more? Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we... You know, I feel as though with some of our guests, we're almost taking a class. This was almost just the quality of knowledge that was imparted to us. It's almost as if we were given a free seminar or a free class. Totally my my perspective as well. Reach out to Owen. Uh, tell him thank you. Uh, you know, take his boot camp, like Janice said. Um, and you can find him on Facebook. So reach out to him via that medium. Or I believe he said MeWe, which is another social media platform. I think if anyone's interested in this, he's the guy to go to. Agreed. Agreed. And thank you for listening. We're appreciative of you and of your attention and of your desire to go deeper than the surface uh, level of understanding. We appreciate that and we're grateful for it. We're grateful for the support of those of you who support us. It just goes into maintenance of the show. You know, there's a lot of hours behind the scenes and editing and uh, technical aspects and hardware and software that people don't realize occur with podcasts. And so I just want to say thank you to anybody and everyone that is uh, trying to help us defer some of those expenses of time or money because we do appreciate it and we are grateful for that. Find us, as always, on Facebook, on YouTube, iTunes, and all the other places you find podcasts. And feel free to give us a review on iTunes. I forget to mention that sometimes, but it does help kind of bump us up a little bit and get us more exposure. So on that note, thank you for listening, and we will see you in the next episode.